It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on these uh, Thursday mornings, we've been walking through a series called The Saga of Scripture. And uh, we've been walking through basically a a high-level overview, if you will, of a, a Bible survey. <clears throat> and we're actually getting close to the end. We have today and then next week. We've kind of finished up this sweeping saga series. Uh, last time <clears throat> we were together, we were talking about the coming of the king. And so we were, we've been walking through this process of looking at the fact that here's a king who establishes a kingdom. Uh, we rebel against the kingdom, and he has been in pursuit of restoration and reconciliation. And so last time we were talking about this idea of the coming of the king and that the, that the God of the universe became flesh and has really went to the greatest extent on our behalf to bring about reconciliation and relationship. Well, what I want to dive into today is this ninth section, which is this idea of the mission of the king. So we have the coming of the king, and obviously talking about Jesus coming in the flesh, and of course his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But it's an amazing reality as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he gives a commission uh, to his disciples, and now we are living in this season called the mission of the king, if you want to phrase it that way. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the side of the mission and kind of apply it practically into our lives. As Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love this passage. Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And when you look at that idea of an ambassador, you you recognize that an ambassador is one who is sent, it is one who is commissioned, and one who goes in the authority of the one who sends him. So, classic example, you have this king, and the king has this emissary or an ambassador, and the king gives all the rights and all the privileges and all the power of the kingdom to the ambassador. So the ambassador goes to this foreign nation, uh, the foreign nation, they're talking uh, and, and the ambassador is representing the authority of the king. What comes out of the mouth of the ambassador is what is coming out of the mouth of the king. Isn't it a phenomenal thought that we are called ambassadors of Christ? That we are literally going in the authority of Jesus Christ. We are full of his life, his very spirit. And as we go, we're not merely just, uh, we're not just merely a representation, if you will. We are proclaiming the message of the king that his spirit is within us, his life is within us, and therefore what is to come out of our lips and what is to come out of our life is that which is in the life of the king himself. And so we are going in the authority and the power uh, with, with all the privileges of the king himself with the message of the king. I just love that idea. So as we look at an idea, at, as we look at this idea of what is this mission or what is this message of, of, of what we are proclaiming, you realize... Now, I know we've quoted this verse since we were little kids, but in John 3.16, it's interesting. We, we see the heart of the king for the kingdom. And John 3.16 obviously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That this king has a passionate desire for the entire world. That he's desiring reconciliation with the world. Or as Romans 5.8 tells us, Paul says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here we are, shaking our fists in God's face, as we keep saying. Uh, here we are, we're living in rebellion, we want to do our, our own way, in our own time, and what is 
what does God do? He, he literally gives himself. He dies on our behalf, which we do not deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve eternity in hell. And yet, what do we receive? We receive the opportunity for forgiveness and life and salvation and freedom and triumph and peace and hope and joy. It's an amazing reality. So Jesus shows up, and he goes through this phenomenal ministry, the coming of the king stuff. Uh, he dies, he resurrects, and he's about to ascend. And I love this idea <clears throat> that here he is, he's talking to his disciples, and he's about to ascend and listen to the commission that the king gives uh, to his people. Uh, in Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You realize the mission that we have as believers is that we are to go into all the world. That we're not merely just to stay in, our little, in a little cluster. We're to like go out and proclaim truth to the entire world. And I love the fact that it is the gospel which we're proclaiming. And I really should just have Sandy come up here and give us a whole exhortation on the gospel. But I don't, she's not looking like she wants to. But it would be really good. But you realize that the gospel is more than just salvation. The gospel is, is more than just forgiveness of our sins. As phenomenal as that is, you realize the gospel is so much greater than that. I love what William Law said. He, he said that the purpose of the cross wasn't just forgiveness, it was Pentecost. That the whole passion of the gospel is this idea that, yes, here we are in rebellion. Yes, here we are as a sinner. And Christ died for us, which is phenomenal. But it wasn't just merely to forgive us. That, that obviously is included. <laughs> it's phenomenal. But it's not merely just to forgive us and give us salvation. It is literally to infill us with his very spirit to produce life within us where there was only death, light where there's only darkness, and then empower us to live out the life that he is calling us to live. So the Christian life that we are called to live is an empowered life by the spirit of God within us. And the totality of the gospel isn't just merely a piece of that, like, oh, the forgiveness of the sins. The totality of the gospel is everything that is producing life and godliness within us, which is incredible. And Sandy says amen, in case you didn't hear it on the audio. Sandy, do you want to come up here and talk through the gospel? I'm happy for you to do it. <laughs> but, the, but the message, Jesus says, that is to come out of our life is the reality of the gospel. And you realize this is not merely in tongue or merely in speech or in language. This is in life as well, that our life is to be an embodiment of the gospel itself. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, in Matthew's record, uh, Jesus is about to ascend, and he's, he gather, gathers his disciples and gives what we call the Great Commission. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, <clears throat> it says that Jesus came and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And isn't it neat, just as a fun side observation, that there is a bookend to the commission, which is the idea of the authority and the power of Jesus. That it starts with all authority has been given to Jesus, and it ends with, hey, and I am with you. And it's like, almost like this bookend idea that the authority and the power of Jesus is what is bringing forth this great commission in and through our lives. But what's interesting, and I, I bring this up occasionally, but it's interesting that when you look at this passage in the Greek, there are four primary verbs in the passage. Technically, if you want to be really technical, uh, three are participles, and one is a, an actual verb. 
which tells you that when you're looking at this passage, there is one key thing, one key action that is supposed to come out of our lives, and there's three things that kind of give definition to that key thing, if that makes sense. So the, the, four, the four verbs, or the three participles in the verb, is go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And it's amazing to me that in our modern church, the one we emphasize, the one we presume is the verb, is the word go. That, hey, go! And as we're going, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But that's not what's in the passage. What is phenomenal to me is that the key verb of the passage is make disciples. And that go, baptize, and teach are participles, meaning they're giving definition to the main verb, which is make disciples. In other words, the calling upon your life is to make disciples. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means you're going to go, you're going to baptize, you're going to teach. In fact, what's interesting in this passage is that the word go, when you look it up in the Greek, is presumed. In other words, it's almost like uh, we shouldn't have to tell you to go, you're already going. Uh, I grew up you know, in a Christian church, and it was interesting that you know, we're trying to get people to do evangelism. We're, we're trying to get people to share the gospel. And so, of course, we have like pizza nights for Jesus. Right? We're going to come in, we're going to give you free pizza, and then we're going to go out and evangelize. And why do we give free pizza? Well, we give free pizza because if you don't get free pizza, you're not going to come and you're going to evangelize. So we're going to bribe you to come in so that you can go out. And, of course, I've heard countless sermons over the years of, hey, go, 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 go. Hey, you should go and evangelize. Hey, go out into the world. Go, 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 go. Why are you still sitting there? Go, right? I mean, we've heard these things. But that's not this passage. And I love this idea that what the passage is actually saying <clears throat> is that you're actually already going. It's more of the idea that Jesus is looking at the disciples and all the disciples are getting up, they're running out the back door, and as they're running out the back door, Jesus is like, hey, hey, while you're going, make disciples. Therefore, baptize and teach. In other words, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to encourage you to go. You're already going. It's presumed. So, hey, while you're going, since you're going anyway, hey, make disciples. And the outflow of that is you should be baptizing and teaching. Isn't that a neat thought? And yet, I fear most of us are not doing it. And we, we need in this generation, for whatever reason, the reason we have to keep yelling on the go is because none of us are going. And yet in Jesus' day, it's like everyone was running down the street anyway. Just an interesting comparison. Uh, but the commission on our life is to make disciples. Uh, Luke, <clears throat> in Luke's record, he turned in the beginning part of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, verses 9 through, I think it's 9 through 11, uh, is the actual ascension of Jesus. So the very last words that, that Luke records is that here's Jesus. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's about to go up into the cloud, and he gives this phenomenal statement. Uh, the disciples ask Jesus, hey, is, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And of course, what they're thinking is through their lens of their culture, which means, hey, uh, Jesus, are you going to go down to Rome and kick Caesar off his throne and reestablish the glory days of like David and Solomon? And Jesus says, <laughs> that is not for you to know. But let me tell you what you're supposed to know. Hey, let me tell you what your whole focus is to be wrapped up in. Hey, let, let me tell you what your consumption is to be. And he gives Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And he, Jesus says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
It's interesting, if you look up any scholars in the, of the book of Acts, they'll tell you that Acts 1-8 becomes the framework or the outline for the entire book of Acts. In other words, what you actually see in the whole book of Acts is that here they are, they're starting in Jerusalem, they expand to the rest of Judea, they go into the Samaria, and then they go into the uttermost parts of the world through Paul's ministry. <clears throat> but it's interesting that what Jesus is saying in the passage is that, hey, look, there's coming this moment, hey, seven to ten days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there's these two elements that are going to take place. One, the Holy Spirit is going to produce power in your life. Now, we're not talking about lightning from your fingers. We're not talking about zapping people, right? We're not talking about that. That would be cool. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about this empowerment for life. We're talking about giving you words in situations. We're talking about this life that you cannot live outside of him kind of stuff. Uh, there's this idea that you're going to have boldness for speaking. Hey, you're going you're to be persecuted, and he's going to give you grace to endure. All that is contained in this idea that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power. That the power of Almighty God is going to be infused within you and is going to produce life and godliness in you. And you're actually going to be able to perform the Christian life as you are commissioned and called to. But not just receive power. Jesus says you shall also be witnesses. Uh, what's neat about that word witness in Greek? It's the Greek word martyr. And, uh, of course, when, when we think martyr, I don't know about you, I, I think people who die for, die for Christ, right? They're martyrs. But the reality in the Greek of this passage is it's not, it's, yeah, it includes people who die for Christ, but it's people who have a message or who have something and they're willing to go unto death for that message. It doesn't mean they're being killed, but it means that they're willing to be and, of course, there's a whole bunch of cheesy illustrations for this. Uh, but Jim Elliott used to say, God, make me a decision man or make me a crisis man. When people come and encounter my life, may they face a crisis. May, may they face a fork in the road where they, they're forced to choose one direction or the other. Are they going to embrace you or are they going to deny you? It's that kind of a thing. That, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be so overwhelmed with the reality of the presence of God that when you're engaging the people around you, they're going to be pressed. Uh, there's going to be a crisis in their life, and they're going, to be, they're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to give my life unto Jesus Christ, or am I going to have to silence that voice and the pressure that I'm feeling? Therefore, I'm going to kill you. It's that kind of a concept. And Jesus says, hey, you are going to be my witnesses. Hey, you are going to be my martyrs. And yes, that may lead to death, but the reality is, is you're going to be so full of a message that when people encounter you, it's either going to cause them to give into it and, and, and desire the same thing that you have, or they're going to have to run from that or silence that voice somehow so that they don't have to have that pressing, that conviction in their life. What would it look like if this generation of Christians had that? That we were so full of the Holy Spirit that what was coming out of our life was, was, this, was this power. That there was this enabling that somehow the world looked upon believers today and they just said, I don't know how you're living. How, how is it that you're, you're pulling off this thing? Because it is utterly impossible, as Ian Thomas often said, that the Christian life cannot be explained, should not be able to be explained in terms of outside of Jesus Christ. That when someone looks at your life, they should not be able to explain your Christian life because of what you are doing or because of your intellect, the only way they should be able to describe your Christian life is because of Jesus. And what would it look like if we had an entire generation who lived on mission for the kingdom and for the king, that somehow we were crisis people, that as we were going out into the world, there was this power enabling our lives to live out 
the gospel, and yet at the same point, we were witnesses that the Spirit of God was making us crisis men and women so that as people encountered us, they were being forced to choose. Are you wanting in, or are you going to get out? Are you going to embrace the light, or are you going to get swallowed up in the darkness? Are you going to have life, or are you going to live in death? And it's no wonder to me that here's this mission for the early church, and in 70 years, so crazy to me, in 70 years, they won the whole known world to Christ. Why? Because there was this, this, the Holy Spirit had come, and there was this power, and there was this witness that was coming out of their life, and the world just, the world was being forced to choose. Now, did everyone choose? No, of course not. But the reality is, is that there was such a pressure upon the world that the, 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 uh, the, what the enemies of, of the early church was even saying in Acts 17, 6, is that, wow, these are the guys who are turning the world upside down. And yet, I was listening to a sermon this morning by Alan Redpath, and he makes the statement, and I've heard it by Leonard Ravenhill too, that for some reason in this, this culture, of course, this was back in the 60s, so it's gotten worse. But what Alan Redpath said this morning was, in this day, we are more afraid of holiness than of sin. That there's, it's like we shy away from the reality of, of the gospel, that, that we're actually more fearful of the Spirit of God than we are of sin. We actually would rather participate in sin than participate in the things of God as, as Christians. And if that was true in the 60s, mercy, how much more true nowadays? And I think the reason why the world is tanking like it is is because we do not have we as believers are not living out this mission of the king. Because I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that if we were truly living out the mission of the king, it, it, the world could not stay the same. Because either we would be killed <laughs> or the world will change. Seems like the only two options. So this begs the question then, if, if, if there's this great mission upon our life to proclaim truth, what then is the message of the mission? And obviously you know the answer to this, but <clears throat> just to give you some fun thoughts here. When you open into the book of Acts, which is the account of the early church, it's interesting that the book of Acts records 10 sermons or 10 sermon excerpts in the book of Acts. Uh, there are five by Peter, one by Stephen. Of course, he got stoned before he could even finish his. And there are four by Paul. And again, they're not the full-length sermons. Uh, Acts chapter 2 is a pretty long one by Peter. But usually they're just little sermon excerpts. They're these little sections that they pull out of the longer sermon. Because we know no preacher ever preaches 30 seconds. <laughs> I've never heard one. Right? You at least got to go 40 minutes to make it spiritual. And so you, you imagine, that was a joke, but uh, you imagine then that Peter and Stephen and, and Paul and all these guys, right, they're probably preaching for more than 10 minutes. So we're just getting little excerpts of their sermons. Uh, but it's interesting that the book of Acts records this. Now, do you know what every single one of those sermons focuses upon? Do you know what the message of every single one of those sermons is? Well, I'll tell you, but let's keep going. Not only is there 10 sermons or sermon excerpts, in the book of Acts, there's also over 30 conversation summaries of what people talked about. In other words, we have these little glimpses of people talking. They're not sermons, but they're just interactions with other people. And it's interesting that every single conversation... Every single sermon, the focus of that, the message that was being proclaimed in every conversation and in every sermon was Jesus. That Jesus is the message. 
Now, it's interesting that based on who they were talking to and the situations, the, the ways that they would talk about Jesus was very different, but the message stayed the same. For, for example, uh, Paul goes into Athens, right, and he's talking to these Greek philosophers. Now, how does Paul talk to these Greek philosophers? Well, he's talking about Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus in light of reason and experience. Why? Because that is the Greek philosophy of the day. So Paul is really stepping into their world, speaking a language they understand, and is talking about Jesus in light of the very stuff that they're wrestling through. But that's very different than when Paul went into the synagogues, right? Every Sabbath, Jesus, or Jesus, Paul would walk into the synagogues, and he would begin to proclaim Christ. And how would Paul proclaim Christ in the synagogues? Well, it makes sense. He would pick up the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews would be using for worship, and he would say, hey, see that passage? That's all about the Messiah. See that passage? It is all about the Messiah. Guess who the Messiah is? Jesus. And Jesus was always the message, even though that message may have been presented in different ways, which is encouraging. Because in our world today, you recognize that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of people, and we, though the message will not change, our methodology of how to communicate Jesus may change. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to use three spiritual laws, if you want to use six spiritual laws, if you want to use 24 spiritual laws, or whatever the new thing is out today, good, use it. But the reality is the message must be Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something, it's just Jesus. Because Jesus is the totality of the message itself, which I just think is phenomenal. Uh, l- listen to just some of these little snippets that we hear from the book of Acts. Uh, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 35 Uh, Philip is talking to this Ethiopian eunuch, and it says that he opened up his mouth and beginning at this scripture, which was Isaiah 53. So the eunuch is reading the Old Testament. He comes to Isaiah 53. He has no idea what it means or what it says. Philip says, hey, are you understanding this? He goes, I have no clue. And it says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. I love that. Uh, Acts 14.3. Uh, Therefore, Paul and Barnabas stayed there, speaking of Iconium, a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. So here's Paul and Barnabas. They come to this town called Iconium, and what are they doing? Well, they are speaking boldly in the Lord and bearing witness of the word of his grace. See, this whole thing is about Jesus. And every message and, and every proclamation, every conversation somehow was kind of brought to the reality and the focus of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting, as you look specifically at the book of Acts, that over and over and over again, it's not just speaking about Jesus. It's almost like they're highlighting one specific arena in the life of Jesus, which was the death and resurrection. And you can say, well, why would they focus on the death and resurrection? Why not the birth? Why not the childhood? But but you recognize that that the whole crux of our salvation, the, the whole linchpin of, of, of all that's going on in Christianity comes to the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all things flow out of this pinnacle called the cross. So it's no surprise then that every time they're talking about Jesus, it's usually tied in the idea of the death and resurrection. Now, for example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up, Pentecost has just taken place, uh, all these different languages is, is, and all these different people are recognizing and seeing what's taking place with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their mouths are hanging open going, what on earth is taking place? Because they're hearing me- a message in all, their different, in all their different languages. 
And of course, Peter stands up and says, we are not drunk like you think we are. It's still nine in the morning. And we do, hey, nobody gets drunk at nine in the morning. And so he begins to talk about the reality of what is taking place in the, in the act of Pentecost. And in the middle of the sermon, uh, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Again, Peter is focusing, here's this phenomenal message, and he's focusing on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yes, he's bringing in the ministry and all that, that stuff, is, that's very true. But the, the primary focus is the death. And isn't it interesting that he puts the blame of the death on the people who are listening? Been that, and that, is, that should make sense. That is true. Because my sin is what nailed him. And I am just as guilty as the Roman soldiers who were actually putting the nails in his hands. And I love the fact that Peter takes his listeners and says, hey, this is, this is all your fault that he did this for you, kind of stuff. So get this flow. You have this ministry. You have this commission that Jesus Christ is giving, that, that your life is to be a declaration of truth. You are an ambassador. Well, what is the message of that mission? Jesus. But it's not just a message. There's this other component to this idea of the message, which I'm going to call the mirror. But think about this. I just think this is profound. Uh, and I, it was freshly brought to my mind uh, these last couple of weeks when we were traveling through Israel. But back in Jesus' day, a rabbis, rabbis were very common, right? Here's this guy, typically around 30 years of age. He began to wander the hillsides. And people would see him, and they would start to hear his message, and they'd say, you know what, I want to attach myself to that rabbi, and I want to put myself under their authority and start learning from that rabbi. So what Jesus was doing was not unique. It was, it was common for his day. Now, obviously, he was unique, and his message was unique, and all, and all that was very true. But it was a very common thing. Do you realize that as a disciple, the moment you identified yourself as a disciple of a rabbi, what you're saying is, not only do I want to be trained in their thought process, which they would call the yoke. Isn't that interesting that Jesus says my yoke is easy? It's really his structure, his law, his, his lifestyle. But the, the idea is, hey, hey, I don't want to just be trained by you. The idea of a disciple to the rabbi is I want to be just like you. That if I put myself as a disciple under the authority of a rabbi, what I'm declaring is I want my life not just to have the same language as the rabbi, I want my life to look like the rabbi. So isn't it interesting that Jesus calls you his disciples? That this isn't just, hey, will you, will you take on my teaching? He, what he's really saying is, will you take on my life? And will you let me make you look just like me? And in essence, we become the mirror of the king, that we are looking like uh, that we are acting like, we are thinking like, we're talking like the king of all kings and lord of all lords. And you realize, again, this goes back to that whole empowering thing by the Holy Spirit, that you, you cannot mimic Jesus. That there's no way for you to somehow grit your teeth and pull this thing off in your own ability. That, that hey, you, you can try for a while and you can sort of produce some love and you might be able to per some, per, uh, produce some joy and maybe if you really try hard, you can have some peace. But that's, that's not this. This is, hey, would you be full of his life 
And somehow, it's not you trying to mimic his life. He's producing his life in and through you. And you become a mirror, not because you're just trying to reflect. You become a mirror in the sense that when people look at you, they don't see you, they see him. And that is a phenomenal reality of this mission, that the mission upon our lives isn't merely just to talk the the language and give this great declaration of truth in the gospel, that your life is to be the declaration because your life is living out the realities of the gospel. Your life is full of the life and the presence of Jesus Christ. Or if you want one illustration, it's the idea of the fruit of the vine. That if you are a branch connected to a vine, you realize the branch just can't help itself to produce the fruit of the vine. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to struggle. It doesn't have to grit its teeth. It doesn't have to try to pull off the fruit. It's connected to the life source. And as long as the branch is connected to the life source, the life-giving sap of the vine flows into the branch. The DNA of the, of the vine flows into the branch and will produce the fruit of the vine. And so what is to come out of our life? Well, your life is to bear fruit. Yeah, that's true. But you're not to grit your teeth and produce a fruit. You're just to hang tight and abide in the vine. And as long as you're abiding in the life of the vine, guaranteed you'll produce the fruit. And you're going to become the mirror. You're going to be the demonstration. You're going to be the showcase of the life and the realities of the gospel itself. That when we're talking about the mission, we're not just talking about a message. We're talking about a life that is bearing the message. So whether you say something or whether you don't say something, your life is screaming in the face of this world. Just like light screams in the face of darkness. And whether light ever says something or doesn't say something, light is bright in the midst of darkness. And it doesn't have to yell it, it just is. And yes, you should, you should speak and proclaim truth. But the reality is our lives should be proclaiming truth. And for so many in the modern church, it seems like we have this great message, and yet our lives are not living up to it. And how guilty how guilty we are of having great truth and not having the life back, backing it up. Uh, John 13, 35, <clears throat> Jesus says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you realize he's not just talking about an emotion. He's talking about a reality. He's talking about a person. First John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16. God is love. That he is the reality of the of of this agape. And you realize that as Christians, our life is going to be marked by this agape. Why? Because the life of the agape is within us. His spirit lives within us, and therefore, his life is going to be seen through us. Now you turn to Galatians chapter 5, and Paul says, hey, the fruit of the spirit. Now you realize that so oftentimes in the church, we come to the fruit of the spirit, and we say, all right, go out and produce the fruits of the spirit. Come on, buckle down, grit your teeth, pull off the fruits of the Spirit. But you realize that'll never happen because these are fruits of the Spirit. Meaning the only way you're going to do this is having the life of the Spirit within you. And just as a branch is connected to the vine, the moment you have the life of the Spirit within you, the fruits of the Spirit are going to come out of you. And love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control is not something you've got to produce. It is something that is just going to start flowing out of you as long as you have the life of the vine within you. Why? Because the mission is not just words. It's not just a message. It is a life containing the message itself and is oozing out of every pore of our body the reality, the life, and the fruit of that person known as Jesus Christ. 
So with all that in mind, listen to this passage again. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, says Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You realize that this isn't just merely a life uh, or a language. This is a t- the totality of all that we are. Is, is, the, is the fullness of this idea that you are an ambassador. You are a representation of the king. That you have been endowed with his power and his message. And we are now able to go through the empowerment of the spirit into this world and proclaim truth. And he has given us a mission. And as long as he tarries, now next week we're going to talk about the return of the king. And the fact that he is returning, which is a, oh, it's an exciting thought. But until he returns... Do you realize we are living in the day and age of the mission and our calling upon our life is to proclaim the mission, which is the person, not just with our lips, but with our very lives. So here's the question. If we were to look at your life, what is the mission and, mission and message of your life? We're all proclaiming something. We all have a message that we're, we're shouting forth. Well, someone could examine how we spend our time and our money, how we spend our energy and our resources, and you realize our lives are declaring something. So what is the mission and the message that is coming out of our life? And maybe, maybe to ask it in a different way, does my life look like the king? Does my life truly look like Jesus? And is the fruit of his life truly flowing out of my life? That is the mission which is an exciting reality that you and I get to partake of. Isn't that awesome? I love that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you that you didn't just <clears throat> do a bunch of activities and then set us on our own. But the reality is, is that you wanted to come and not only just have relationship, but you wanted to come and fill us with your very spirit, with your life, with your truth. But then you didn't want to just keep it bottled up within our lives, but you wanted this thing to explode out of our life, to ooze out of every pore of our body, to not just let it be something that comes out of our lips, but out of every aspect of our living. This proclamation of truth, this proclamation of light and life, which is a person known as Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would somehow gain a fresh reality of the mission that you've commissioned us to. That we are to proclaim life that we are to proclaim Jesus Christ light to this dark and dreary world. That we are to produce or uh, proclaim life in the midst of death. And Lord, what you are wanting to produce in and through us is a showcase of your very presence in your life. Lord, I pray that you would fill our mouths with truth. That every conversation and every sermon and and every interaction we have would somehow just be turned with a message, a focus of you. Lord, I pray that when we're down at the grocery store, or whether we're filling up our gas tanks, or whether we're just hanging out with a friend, somehow the focal reality of that message, that conversation would be you. Lord, I pray that our lives wouldn't merely just say good things, but not live out the reality. Lord, I pray that our lives would be a declaration, that our thought process, how we think, how we act, how we feel, our emotions would somehow give you the glory that every aspect of our life would somehow be a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when the world looks upon our lives, that they wouldn't see us, they would see you. They wouldn't see our strength, they would see your strength. 
They wouldn't see us gritting our teeth and trying to manage our emotions or our feelings. They would see you governing and controlling. Jesus, I just pray that you would be seen afresh in and through our lives. And Lord, I pray that as long as you tarry, may the mission of the kingdom be the reality of our lives. What an opportunity we have, Jesus, to be ambassadors for you. And not just to go with a message, but to go in your strength and your power because we are full of your spirit. Lord, we just give you praise and glory. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.